Well, wherever you are, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word with me or uh, open the program or click to it or swipe to somehow get to Ezra uh, chapters 9 and 10 as we uh, wrap up our, our series in Ezra. And this is certainly not the, the way that I had envisioned uh, closing out our series in Ezra from a distance digitally, but trust that in God's providence that, uh, that, that this is uh, exactly the way that we need to do it. And so I'm trusting that God's going to use our time in the Word together today to edify us, to uh, continue to build us up around the gospel, around Christ together, uh, and with the hope that we have in Jesus. So Ezra chapters 9 and 10. As we wrap up Ezra, I just want to remind you where we've been over the last uh, few weeks and where we were just a couple of weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we were in Ezra chapter 8, where uh, uh, Ezra, kind of the chief character of this book of the Old Testament, leads another group of exiles back to Jerusalem from Babylonia. We saw him uh, not have any uh, Levites there with him, and so he had to send away to the city of Casaphia to acquire some Levites who were trained and ready to go and serve in the temple. We saw him lead the people of Israel in fasting and prayer by the river Ahava for God's protection along the 900-mile journey or so that they had from Babylonia to Jerusalem. We saw God be faithful to that prayer to protect the people. And we saw Ezra leading the returnees in, in worship there again at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, as we come to Ezra chapters 9 and 10, we're going to find uh, our, our central character, Ezra, run into a problem. And this is how the book of Ezra will end, is with the dealing uh, with a particular problem. All along the way, we've been talking about and seeing how God is rebuilding His people throughout the course of this book, rebuilding His people for worship uh, formally through the, the, the temple and the worship that takes place there. And now here in the second half of Ezra, Ezra chapters 7 through 10, God rebuilding His people for uh, what we've said is like a horizontal worship, worship through life together, and how, how following God and reflecting God's character is not just something that we do when we worship together formally in church or uh, in the case of the, the, the Israelites in the temple, but worship is also something we take into our daily lives. That, that formal worship, a worship of God in church or in the temple uh, without uh, a life of horizontal worship is hypocrisy. It, it looks like we're pretending to be something that we're not. And a life of, of holiness without formal worship of God and, and, and humbling ourselves before God in worship formally is just uh, usually just leads to self-righteousness. And so what we need to have and what God has intended His people always to have is a life balanced between the two, a vertical worship with God, a formal worship of God, humbling ourselves before Him, seeking His face, seeking His grace and forgiveness, worshiping and praising Him for His goodness, and then also a life of worship that extends into our relationships, into our business dealings, into how we deal with the people around us and live among our neighbors and our family. Now in Ezra chapters 9 and 10, we will see Ezra leading the Israelites to, uh, to repent, to, to incorporate horizontal worship through repentance of habitual sins that had threatened their relationship with God together as a people. What I want for us to understand uh, from this passage today is that God does desire relationships with sinners, 
But the kind of relationship that he desires to have with sinners is that of a relationship that revolves around repentance, that revolves around uh, his people realizing, recognizing that they have sin that they need to turn from, that they have things that are keeping them from right fellowship with God, uh, sins that are, that are preventing them from the fullness of life that God intends for them. God wants a relationship for people but, but uh, wants a relationship with people, but a certain kind of relationship, one that is characterized by repentance. We could say that a different way, that the church is for all sorts of people, but only a certain kind. And the church is for all sinners, but only a certain kind of sinners, only for repenting ones. Today, as we look at the repentance that is necessary in Ezra 9 and 10, I, I hope that we would be moved personally to consider what sins we need to repent from and, and that we would have wisdom from God to know how to repent and, and that we would have encouragement from God to do it, to repent immediately. Well, wherever you are, look in your Bibles with me. We'll begin in Ezra chapter 9, uh, verses 1 through to start. We'll read most of 9 and 10 together today, but we'll start here in Ezra chapter 9, verse 1, where we read, After these things, this is after Ezra has led the people back into Jerusalem, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men has been foremost." As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment, says Ezra, and my cloak, and I pulled hair from my head and beard, and I sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. As soon as we come to chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, we are met face-to-face with a problem, a problem that Ezra presents. It's a, a problem of widespread sin. The, the symptom of this sin l- looks like this. It looks like intermarriage between the men of Israel and women of the peoples of the lands surrounding. The peoples uh, that are listed here in uh, verse 2, uh, the, uh, verse 1, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, so on and so on. That list of names may sound familiar if you've spent much time in the Old Testament, from uh, particularly in, in Exodus through Deuteronomy as God is instructing His people who are returning or going from slavery in Egypt into being an independent people in the land of Canaan. God telling them not to, not to mix worship or to mix marriage with these idolatrous pagan people. And yet, that's exactly what has happened here in Ezra chapter 9. As the, the Israelites have returned from exile in Persia back to Jerusalem, some of the men, even beginning with some of the priests and the Levites, have started to marry these women from foreign peoples, from other peoples. Now, this is not in and of itself an issue of racism or or racial prejudice. What this is is an issue of faithfulness to God and worship to God. 
You see the, the women of the, well, not just the women, but all of the peoples of these other lands, the Canaanites, Hittites, Jebusites, Ammonites, so on and so forth, they worshiped gods that were not the one true God, the, the gods that were not Yahweh, uh, the God of the people of Israel. They worshiped other gods, often called the Baals or Baals. Um, uh, Baal was a particular uh, fertility god, but there were other gods that were referred to as Baals as well, uh, Asherah and other things, uh, gods and goddesses that were not the true God of Israel, and they were worshiping and giving themselves in worship to them. So the problem is that as these uh, priests and Levites, these uh, Israelites have returned to Jerusalem to be a people built for right worship of God, they have begun polluting the right worship, the full devotion and faithfulness to God by marrying idolatrous people, by marrying idolatrous uh, women and not requiring them or even asking them to, uh, to convert to worshiping Yahweh alone. Now, these women were not the only ones that were uh, ever from an outside people that were married by Israelites. We know of other stories where uh, outsiders uh, married into Israel, and it did not go poorly. It went well. Two good examples are uh, that of Rahab, who was a Jerichoite uh, prostitute who protected Joshua and the other spies as they were spying out the land of Jericho before invading it. She uh, would then turn and in faithfulness join the people of Israel as a worshiper of Yahweh. Uh, and then we have uh, also Ruth, who was a Moabitess, a, a woman from the tribe of, uh, uh, from the people of Moab. These who are even mentioned in verse 1 of Ezra 9. But Ruth uh, forsook she gave up the worship of her tribal gods to worship Yahweh alone. And Ruth, this Moabite woman who's converted in faith as a, a member of the uh, house of Israel, uh, is married to a man named Boaz, and she herself becomes grandmother to King David. So it's not the issue of marrying foreign women in and of itself that is at the core here. It's the issue of marrying of these priests and Levites, leading men in Israel, marrying women who, uh, who, who were not faithful to God and neither were they seeking to be. Now, the root of their sin could be all sorts of things. The symptom of their sin, the, the way it works itself out is in marrying these other women. But the cause of their sin could be all sorts of things. Could be idolatrous hearts uh, among the priests and the Levites themselves and perhaps desiring to have favor with other gods that, that were not Yahweh. Uh, perhaps they had a desire for uh, economic or geographic uh, security, and so they make these marriages uh, al uh, aligning and allying themselves with surrounding people to keep them safe from attack and invasion. Could be that these men who married these foreign women were just sort of promiscuous, that perhaps they had had, had a desire for the exotic, uh, for, for a woman that was different than the women of Israel. Uh, just men make all sorts of crazy decisions and wild decisions like this, uh, and especially when they're allowed to. We can't say exactly what it is that was driving them, uh, driving their desire to marry these women, but we do know this, that the root of their sin is certainly a direct disobedience to the law of God, the law that God had given to His people. Uh, if we read in Deuteronomy chapter, three, uh, chapter 7, excuse me, verses 3 and 4, these words, in Deuteronomy, uh, God is preparing through Moses, His people Israel, to go into the land of Canaan into the promised land. And there he says in Deuteronomy 7, you shall not intermarry with them, with the, the people that are surrounding the lands that you're going to, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. 
And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and He would destroy you quickly. The reason that God has said, don't intermarry with these pagan people is because they'll take your heart away from me. They'll lead you to go after other gods. And indeed, that's exactly what we're seeing happening here in Ezra chapter 9, among the leading men of Israel, priests and Levites especially. The sin is particularly severe because as we read in verse 2, it was those leaders in Israel that, that were paving the way, were charting the course in this sin. They weren't brought along. They weren't deceived. They were the ones that, that first started to do it. And these were those that were supposed to be leading Israel in faithfulness and faithful worship to God. And yet they're the first ones out there uh, in this sin. The problem is uh, that of widespread sin. But then we see uh, a response. We see Ezra's response to this sin, his response of brokenhearted confession. Look with me at Ezra chapter 9, verses 3 through 15. Or excuse me, verses 6 through 15. Ezra, Ezra continues. He says, I uh, uh, fell upon my knees, spread out my hands to the Lord my God, and I said, O oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today." But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within His holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands, with their abominations, speaking of their idolatry, that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land." and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us uh, for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we, have left a, we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. The problem is that of widespread sin. And Ezra, when he becomes aware of this, responds to the widespread sin among the people of Israel with broken-hearted confession. We see him broken-hearted and mourning in grief as he tears his clothes and pulls out his hair and his beard, a, a sign of deep grief and mourning uh, uh, among Israelite culture. He is this way in fasting and prayer and grief all the way until the evening sacrifice that day. What we need to see here is that Ezra, recognizing the sin of the people, is totally undone by it. He's totally devastated by their sin. Friend, is this how you respond to sin? 
whether it's sin in your own life or, or sin that you're aware of in the life of a brother or a sister in Christ, or, or maybe patterns of sin that, that become, uh, 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 that, that, that make themselves uh, aware to you uh, that, that are going on in the life of maybe even the church. Do you respond to sin the way that Ezra has responded to sin? When you're confronted by it, when you see it for what it is, do you fall on your face before God and seek His grace and mercy? Or do we take a live and let live approach to sin? And perhaps a brother or sister in faith confesses sin to you, a struggle that they have, a temptation that they fall into regularly. Do you respond to them with, respond to their confession of sin with grief and mourning the way that Ezra does? Or do you respond to their confession with something by saying something like, you know, yeah, I get it. We all struggle with things. I'll be praying for you. That kind of message, that kind of live and let live, yeah, we all struggle, you know, it's all kind of, we, we all have hard things that we go through uh, in, in faith, you know, yeah, yeah, whatever, we'll get through it. That kind of response to sin does two things that I think are inappropriate. On the one hand, it, it doesn't necessarily recognize the severity of sin, the, the danger that sin is. It doesn't recognize the seriousness of, of sin. It just says, yeah, 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 I struggle too, you know, let's all feel a little bit better about ourselves. Sin is serious, and and the results of sin are serious too. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the Apostle Paul writing, he says, says, the wages of sin is death. The results of sin are serious. And so when we treat sin unseriously, uh, we we don't do the one who's confessing sin or who's guilty of sin any, any, any justice. We don't do them any help. Also, we don't leave them with any hope. If we just say that, oh yeah, I struggle too, you know, things will probably get better. Well, we don't leave them with with any real hope for escaping this pattern or cycle of temptation and sin and temptation and sin. So Ezra is brokenhearted by the sin of the people. He mourns and grieves all day long. He fasts all day and then he prays for everybody, kind of a, a corporate prayer of confession and repentance. In verses 6 through 9 of chapter 9, Ezra confesses to God what has been an historical pattern of sin among the people of Israel. He says, we've always been this way. We've always gone after gods that are not you, Lord. We've, We've always tried to satisfy our hearts with the things of this world or with relationships with other people. We've always tried to do things our way and not your way, God, and we have blown it. And yet you, even in spite of our unfaithfulness, have been faithful to us faithful even to preserve a remnant of your people to return to Jerusalem to rebuild a temple to you. Ezra confesses an old pattern of sin and then he turns in verse 10 to confess the present pattern of sin, the present problem. And in this prayer, notice that Ezra includes himself. He says, oh my God, I am ashamed to blush my face to you, uh, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Verse, uh, that's verse six. Verse 10 says, now our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded to your servants and the prophets. Ezra doesn't exclude himself from the sin of the people, but he includes himself with them. Though Ezra is not himself complicit in the sins of the men of Israel, he is still a sinner that needs God's grace and forgiveness. He's a man who understands, even as Paul said in Romans chapter 3, that we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ezra might not be guilty of this sin of marrying foreign idolatrous women, but Ezra is a guilty sinner. 
Ezra has rebelled against God in his own way in his life, and he is uh, recognizing that before God and, and giving as an example to the people of Israel the right posture to take with him. Ezra includes himself in this prayer of confession, and Ezra doesn't minimize the severity of sin. Read what he says in verse 15. He says, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, you are righteous, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. Now, friends, this is a situation of every sinner when they stand before God. All of us should be undone. None of us can stand before God with confidence uh, in, in light of His moral perfection without any consequence for our sin. Because God alone is holy, we who are sinners, we who have rebelled against His rightful rule and reign in our lives, we should be undone in His presence. We should be humbled by our sin. And if we're not humbled by our sin in this life, we will be certainly when we meet Him face-to-face. Sin is a serious problem in the life of the people of Israel here in Ezra chapter 9. And sin is a serious problem when it uh, appears in the life of any individual. So friend, we, we must, you and I, we must treat sin seriously. When we become aware of sin in our own lives, we need to confess it immediately and specifically. As soon as we're aware that we have offended God, we need to take it to to Him and say, God, I have sinned. I have messed up. I have transgressed Your holiness, and I need Your forgiveness. And I've, I've, I've transgressed Your holiness in this way, specifically outlining our sins, just as Ezra did for the people of Israel. But in all of this, we shouldn't approach God in our sin, confessing and and and. Um, and seeking repentance of our sin without hope. Because we can, we can go to God with hope even as we confess our sins. Because Ezra, uh, I love how Ezra does this, he kind of stands in as an intermediary, as a, as a mediator for the people of Israel to God. He, he sort of speaks for them collectively as one confessing the sins of the many. And through his confession, there's hope for the people of Israel. In this way, Ezra is a, is a picture, he's a type, he's a foreshadowing of a better intermediary to come. And that intermediary is Jesus. Jesus, who did not join us in sin, but who was God in flesh, identified himself with us in our humanity, becoming human like we are. And instead of living a sinful life, he lived a sinless life and gave that life as a sacrifice for us. He stood in our place. He identified with we who were sinners. He bore our sin on himself, in himself, on the cross, and said to God, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. When we're aware of sin in our life, we need to confess it immediately and specifically. But we also do that with hope through Jesus and through faith in him who gave his life for sinners like you and like me. Do you approach God when you confess sin through faith in Jesus? That's the only way that there's hope, uh, hope for repentance and hope for forgiveness is through faith in Him. So when you recognize sin in your life, treat it seriously, confess it uh, immediately and specifically, and lean upon Jesus who became sin for us that we might by faith in Him become the righteousness of God. Well, we've seen the problem, widespread sin. We've seen Ezra's response, brokenhearted confession. 
And now we see a solution that is posed to this problem of widespread sin. And the solution that is proposed is that of widespread repentance. Look with me at Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. Ezra continues that while Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this, Shechaniah says. Therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. He says to Ezra, Arise, for it is your task. And we are with you to be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and the Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. And so they took the oath. Ezra's example of brokenhearted confession, praying before God, his his mourning and grief over sin uh, sets an example for the, the rest of the people to follow. And they do. They join him in recognizing their collective sin. And among them, one man named Shechaniah, who we'll find out uh, uh, later is the son of a man named Jehiel, who's mentioned in chapter 10, verse 26, as one of these leading Israelites who, who married uh, foreign idolatrous women. Shechaniah comes to Ezra and he says, look, man, we are ready to repent. We're ready to turn from our sin. And, and we're ready to do do whatever it takes to be obedient to God. And in what Shechaniah says, we we realize or come to, to learn at least three things about repentance. First of all, repentance must be total. Now, turning from sin can never be half-hearted or halfway. It has to be a total turn. And for the people of Israel, every man that is complicit, every man that's guilty of these marriages has to repent. And Shechaniah is even saying, he's even committing for these men, we're going to do it. We're going to do whatever is necessary according to the law of God. We recognize also that sometimes repentance is painful. Repentance hurts. In this case, it's painful because repentance involves the dissolving of what are illegitimate or unlawful marriages. These are marriages that God's law had prohibited the people of Israel from entering into, but they're marriages nonetheless. Even though they're unlawful, even though they're illegitimate, they still must be dissolved, and there's going to be pain in that. Some of these men, these leading men of Israel, have brought into marriages unwittingly uh, women who now will become the, the, if we can put it this way, the the victims of uh, of these divorces that will take place. Repentance is sometimes painful because of the people that we draw into our sin with us. Third, we see in Shechaniah's response to Ezra that repentance will need courage. Repentance needs bravery. It's going to require courage from Ezra who will have to lead the people through the process of repenting. It's a hard thing to do. And we'll see a little bit later, there are dozens of men, uh, uh, over a hundred men that are complicit in the sin that Ezra has to lead the people of Israel to know how to adjudicate, how to deliberate correctly about each and every one of these cases. Ezra's got to do something that's very unpopular. And so leading in repentance is uncomfortable. It takes courage, but also repenting takes courage. Repenting on the part of the sinner takes courage because we've got to come to a place where we are humbled before God to recognize, I've messed up. I've done something I I shouldn't have done. I have transgressed your moral standard, God. 
takes bravery to admit that we're sinful, maybe even in the face uh, or in the presence of an audience of friends or family members who maybe previously approved of our sin. It takes courage to repent there. The solution we hear from Shechaniah is widespread repentance. And then we see in the last verses of Ezra chapter 10, the response of the people to their sin. And their response is one of decisive action. They take decisive action to repent. Look with me beginning in Ezra chapter 10 verse 6. We read, Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God, and he went to the chamber of Jehohanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem, and that if anyone did not come within three days by order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeited, and he himself would be banned from the congregation of the exiles. Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin, those are the the representative tribes that remain uh, among the exiles, they assembled at Jerusalem within three days. And it was the ninth month on the 20th day of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. And Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increase the guilt of Israel. Now then, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly answered with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. But the people are many, and it is a time of heavy rain. We cannot stand in the open, nor is this a task for one day or for two, for we have greatly transgressed in this matter." Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let all in our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times and with them the elders and judges of every city until the fierce wrath of our God over this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jazeah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, and Meshullam and Shabbatai, the Levites, supported them. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men, heads of the fathers' houses, according to, their father, according to their fathers' houses, each of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to examine the matter. And by the first day of the first month, three months in total, they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. The people's response is one of decisive action. Following Shechaniah's charge, his encouragement to Ezra, Ezra takes a whole other night of prayer and fasting. This is the third time in just chapters 9 and 10 that Ezra has stopped to pray and to fast, asking for God's wisdom and help. This is the fourth time, at least in the book of Ezra, that this man has stopped as leader of the people to pray and to fast, seeking God's help for whatever situation lied in front of them. We see at least this, and this this point is kind of tangential to where we're going, but it's important for us to recognize this, that faithfulness and obedience to God, and, and especially among those who are leading God's people, faithfulness and obedience to God does not come apart from much dedicated prayer. Those of us who, who lead in the, in the church, either as pastors or as deacons or as Bible study leaders, those of, us who are, uh, those of us who are charged with leading in our homes and leading our children to, to love, uh, love the Lord and to follow Him in obedience, those of us who are leaders uh, at work and, and maybe among our, our co-workers, we cannot be faithful and obedient to God in all that He has called us to do, in all the ways that He has called us to lead without much prayer. 
There's much that I have to learn from Ezra's example of being a man of prayer and fasting and seeking God's help. And I hope that you're learning from his example as well. Well, from this point in time, after his night of prayer and fasting, Ezra calls all the men of Israel to appear in Jerusalem, which they do. And they do this in the middle of, uh, towards the end of the ninth month, beginning of the tenth month, which is around December. And that is a wet season in, uh, in Israel and in Jerusalem. And we read here that they were caught there in the middle of heavy rain, pouring rain. Now, among their gathering, all of these people, wisdom prevails, and Ezra listens to the wisdom of the people who say, hey, we'd like just for our leaders to represent us. Uh, This is not a matter that can be taken care of quickly or in a short amount of time. It's going to take a while, and we can't do it standing out here in the rain. So let's do it this way. We'll have our leaders come, and we'll come with them, and we can deal with it case by case. And Ezra says, that sounds good, and so that's what they do. They all work together in this decisive action of repenting from this sin. There's several things about this task that I think we need to notice and and bear in mind as we work through. It's a difficult task of repentance, but we see these things. First first of all, the task takes over three months to complete. They begin on the first day of the 10th month and they end on the first day of the first month. So three months in total are taken to deal with all of these cases. We didn't read these verses, but you can see them at the end of chapter 10, verses 18 through 44. Over a hundred different men, a hundred different families are mentioned as having been affected by this sin and having to have their cases adjudicated and dealt with by Ezra and the leaders. They took three months to deal with a hundred cases. That's that's just over a a case and a half a day on, on average. What this, uh, I think, indicates to us is that Ezra and the other leaders did not take this matter lightly. Uh, They knew that this was a a case that involved human beings and difficult and delicate situations, and they were willing to take the time needed to work through it appropriately, obediently, lawfully even. I think it's likely that uh, arrangements were made for the women who were sent away, for these uh, idolatrous women who were previously married by Israelite men, that they would have been sent back to their fathers or to their brothers from which they came. They were not being just unceremoniously cast aside uh, without any regard for their well-being in the future. I think it's uh, very likely, very possible that they were sent away with uh, money for, uh, and other goods for, for their benefit and, and for their livelihood in the future. Uh, we know in several places of Scripture that uh, that, that God uh, speaks very harshly against those who, who treat the foreigner or the sojourner, who treat the stranger or the widow uh, uh, poorly. God ha- has no regard for people who act that way. So I think it's very likely in keeping with God's character and the character of His people that these women uh, that were sent away from, from these um, illegitimate marriages were probably cared for even in, their, even in the middle of, uh, of, of this regrettable situation of divorce. It's very possible also that not all of these women were sent away. Some of them could have been like Ruth, could have been like Rahab, uh, may have uh, forsaken their tribal gods, their tribal deities to worship uh, Yahweh alone. And they may have formally joined the people of Israel and been able to remain in those marriages. Ezra does not give us explicitly what happened in each and every case. He just mentions those that Uh, this sin uh, affected in the lives of those that that it affected. But we should not read this and and think that somehow the people of Israel uh, were unnecessarily cruel uh, or or unkind in the way that they dealt with these things. 
Nevertheless, Ezra and the returnees take decisive action to repent of this sin. They recognize what they've done is wrong and, and they take immediate action. Do we do the same? When we recognize sin in, in our own lives, do we immediately resolve within ourselves to be done with it? And do we take decisive action to repent of sin, even knowing that we may, may cause harm, may cause hurt feelings in the lives of others that maybe we have folded into our sin? When we recognize that we've offended God and all of His holiness, do we take action to do the hard thing and to turn from what has been a destructive path? Repentance is hard. It's hard for the people of Israel here in Ezra 10. It's hard for us today. Repentance is hard because, it, it, one, it requires changing our heart's orientation. We have to turn from ourselves and turn to God. We have to admit that, that the life that I've lived, that the direction that I've taken, the things that I've done seeking to satisfy myself have been opposite to God's will for my life. That's hard to do. It takes a lot of humility. It takes a lot of personal humbling and, and, and sincere regret over that. It takes a recognition that God's plan, God's will for our life is better than our will for our lives. But repentance is hard, secondly, because sin often affects other people around us. The sin of the men of Israel had adversely affected these women and the children that were born by them. Sin in our lives, we, we need to recognize, always overpromises and underdelivers. Sin always takes more than it ever promises to give. Sin always costs more than it advertises. It always hurts more than it helps. And it always affects more than we can ever anticipate it affecting. Sin always has a ripple effect in our life. It always has a cascading effect as it works itself out in our life and in the lives of those around us. And repentance is hard because we have to not only recognize that sin has been harmful to us, but that sin has been harmful to others in our lives as well. As we have invited them in, folded them, them into our patterns of sin, or as we have actively sinned against them, Repentance hurts because sometimes it means cutting off relationships that started sinfully and have only continued sinfully. Repentance is hard, but it is worth doing and it's worth taking decisive action to do. Now at this point, I, I want to take some time to just make a note on the particular situation that we see here that some of you may find yourselves in that you're watching today. In this situation, we have a group of people who are followers of God, people of God, who are married to people who are not believers, to, uh, to pagan people or people who don't have faith in Yahweh alone. I want to take a moment to just speak briefly uh, on the, the issue of, of believers, of Christians who are married to non-Christians. Some of you watching this may be followers of Jesus who are married to husbands or wives who are not followers of Jesus. And you might be wondering, in light of Ezra 9 and 10, do I need to divorce my spouse because they're not a follower of Jesus and I am? Well, I want to say to us, first of all, that Ezra chapters 9 and 10 is describing uh, a situation that took place in, in one point in time in the people of Israel, in God's people. Ezra 9 and 10 is not prescribing what should be the case in all similar situations going forward. This is a descriptive passage, not a prescriptive passage. 
And so because of that, uh, this is probably not, Ezra 9 and 10 should not be read as a prescription, as a directive for how to handle your marriage if you're a believer married to a non-believer or if you're a non-believer who is married to a Christian. Secondly, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 speaks to exactly this sort of situation where a Christian might be married to a non-Christian. And so here we, we interpret Scripture in light of other places of, of Scripture, and that's, that's what we want to do here. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 speaks to the same situation where a Christian is married to a non-Christian. And there in 1 Corinthians 7, he says that if the non-Christian spouse, if the non-believing spouse is willing to live with their Christian husband or wife and allow their Christian husband or wife the freedom to worship and obey Jesus as, as, as they feel in their conscience and in their heart that they must, then the Christian spouse should not seek to divorce their non-believing husband or wife. Even more, Paul says that in a situation like this, God can work in redeeming ways through such a marriage. God can work through the faith and the example of a believing spouse in the life of an unbelieving spouse to bring them to see the hope of the gospel and the truth of Jesus. But if you're not a Christian and you are married to a devoted follower of Jesus or the other way around, don't be surprised when in times of conflict over serious and deep matters that the two of you come to uh, what may seem like unreconcilable differences in how to address a conflict because of your differing underlying worldviews. In times like these, dear Christian, you will have the hard task of holding to your obedience to Christ and to love and respect your spouse, your husband or wife who may not follow Jesus. You'll need to exercise patience with your husband or wife who does not share your same faith convictions. And listen, God will use this. God intends to use this for His glory and for your good and for the good of your, your marriage even, but it will be hard. Dear friend, you who are watching this with us today, and you may not be a Christian and you are married to a believer, to a follower of Jesus. If you're married to such a husband or a wife, I would just say that you can expect to feel at times a sense of alienation from your spouse when they make decisions in their life that are driven by their faith. It's my hope and prayer for you who don't yet follow Jesus that the way that, you, that, that your believing spouse lives with you and loves you, that that, that that life would demonstrate that faith in Jesus, trust in Christ is far better than relying upon ourselves that the way that your Christian spouse, your Christian husband or, or wife who is following Jesus, even though you may not, I would pray that their life would give the example of proving the point that grace is better than holding a grudge and that asking for forgiveness is better than holding on to power. Christian, if you find yourself today in a position where you're married to a, a, somebody who's not a believer, don't despair in reading Ezra 9 and 10. This was a decision that God's people made at one point in time that is not binding on all believers today. At the same time, see your marriage as a, as a place to inject and to model the hope that we have in Jesus for forgiveness of sin, for grace from God on a daily basis. Live with and love your spouse who does not follow Jesus in a way that, that is winsome and compelling, in a way that illustrates in delightful ways the joy that it is to follow Christ. Dear friend, if you're not a follower of Jesus, it is my hope that your believing spouse, if you live in such a scenario as this, is modeling things that way. 
And I pray that, uh, and we just invite you to, to, to uh, seek to understand who Jesus is a little bit better through the faith that your husband or wife have. We'll be praying for you, and I hope that you, by God's grace, will have patience with those that you live with and love. I want to leave us with this final point of application. As we see the response of the people of uh, decisive action to repent of sin that had been committed over a long period of time, give us this final point of exhortation. Dear friend, when you recognize sin in your life, make decisive action to repent with wholeheartedness, to decidedly turn from sin once and for all. Don't linger in sin. Don't wait for things to get better. Don't don't hope that somehow the the conviction you feel about sin will just let up. No, confess your sin immediately and, and, and specifically, and then make decisive action to repent of it. There may be all sorts of sins uh, that, that you're struggling with today. Repentance is not a thing that is foreign to any of us who are Christians. We, we who have been following Jesus for a very long time uh, recognize that we have to continue to repent of sin always. But if there's sin in your life, make decisive action to repent of it today. You may be struggling with the uh, temptation to view pornography. You may have fallen into that sin frequently. Uh, dear friend, if that is you, you may need to take decisive action to repent of that by not having electronic devices that are connected to the internet uh, in private places in your home. Uh, you may need to install accountability software on your phone, on your computer to, to keep you from uh, going to, to, to view those, those things and that will report your action to, to, to a trusted friend who will hold you accountable to it. You may need to seek help from uh, from another brother or sister in faith who, who has experienced some victory uh, over this area of sin in their life and just ask them to pray with you and to be a person that you can report your failings to. Take decisive action to repent of sin. Maybe you're guilty of embezzling money from your place of work or from your employer. If you're guilty of something like that, repent decisively about that sin. Confess it to your supervisor, to your manager, to your boss. And do whatever it takes to make that situation right. Listen, repentance is hard. It hurts because uh, sin is always harmful to other people. And so when we seek to turn from it, we've got to deal uh, with the consequences of it as well. Repenting of sin of something like embezzlement may require that you lose your job, but part of repentance is owning the consequences for our sin and trusting God to care for us even in light of and in spite of uh, and through our repentance. So take decisive action to repent of sin. Do it today. Dear friend, if you've never trusted Jesus as Savior and Lord, if you've never experienced the joy of repentance, I I, I implore you, come to the one priest, the only intermediary between God and man who can make us right with Him. Give your life over to Jesus. Confess your sin to God. Trust Him as Lord and Savior, believing He died for your sins and rose from the dead. Enter into the joy of repentance and new fellowship in relationship with God. That's the end of our service here today, but as we close, a screen is going to come up, and you're going to see some reflection questions that we invite you to, to, to take some time to read and to ask among your family or those that you're watching with. Maybe take some time, if you're watching alone, to journal through some, some of these answers and responses to how God is leading you to respond to his text today. Hey, there's my dog, Barney, and when you're working from home, sometimes your friends come into the picture too. Uh, Barnabas is our son of encouragement, and he's been encouraging to us in these days of isolation. 
Pray that you're being encouraged as well in God's Word and as you seek to connect with one another digitally. It's been a joy to meet with you this way today. I look forward to meeting you again face-to-face. But until then, we'll return back to this place this way on Sunday mornings uh, until we're able to meet again in person. Let me pray for us, and as I do, ask for God's help as we seek to live lives of repentance. Gracious God in heaven, thank you for the gift of salvation through faith in Jesus, your Son, the one who gave his sinless life for us, that we might become the righteousness of God by faith in him. God's sin is serious, and we want to deal with it seriously. Give us strength. Give us patience. Give us the the resolve to repent immediately and quickly and decisively. Give us joy and salvation in Jesus. Give us hope of eternal life with you. The wages of sin is death, but as your word promises, the gift of God, the gift that you give through faith in Jesus is eternal life. Thank you, God, for this promise of eternal life we have through faith in your Son. Thank you for the gift of reconciliation and restoration to you. God, thank you for the way that you love us and the way that you you pursue us in love, even in the midst of our failings. Thank you for your faithfulness in spite of our faithlessness. Now, God, may we follow you faithfully this week in repentance of sin, giving glory to you for the way that you have redeemed our lives. Give each one of us strength this week in whatever way that we may need it from you to endure these anxious and uncertain times. And God, we trust that you will use all that is going on in the world around us for your glory and for the good of those who are called according to your purposes. We ask all of this in faith in Jesus through the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen.